0: You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at soundtalentmedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit jabberjawmedia.com for more shows like this one. Break it down, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. Break it down, oh, break it down. Break it down, oh break it down Break it down, oh break it down Let's met cutter. Yeah! Downers, welcome to the show. Uh, really quickly, I want to say congratulations to me, because we have a sponsor on the show now. Our good friends at LootCrate.com uh, have decided to tell you guys about themselves, so we're going to treat them good. I'm going to tell them, I'm going to tell you more about them a little bit later on, but I just wanted to say thanks to them and you guys, LootCrate.com slash down, if you want to go ahead and check it out now before I get to the ad. And also, if you're doing any holiday shopping this season, don't forget to go to BreakItDownPod.com Click through the Amazon link, bookmark it, and do your holiday shopping there to support the podcast. Um, we're going to get going here in a second. I've got Dan Carlin on the podcast today. Uh, I don't like to uh, do the, you know, people like to say tell people they fanboy out on people, and I don't do that. But I am honored to have Dan Carlin on the show. He's a big deal and probably the best guest I have ever wanted to have on my show, and we got him. So thank you guys for listening, um, putting up the kind of numbers that get good guests like Dan Carlin. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, Downers, welcome back to the podcast. I am extremely excited for this week's episode. I'm talking to Dan Carlin. Dan is a podcaster, lives in, uh, what are you, in Salem, Oregon, or Eugene? Where are Eugene. you? Eugene, Eugene, Oregon, uh, up here in the Northwest. I'm in Seattle, Dan, by the way. Uh, I've been down there to Eugene a whole bunch, playing music and traveling, so I, I'm familiar with the area there. Um, although, if you're, if you're wondering, and if anybody out there always wonders, my accent is obviously not from the Northwest. I'm from the South. I'm from South Carolina originally, but I've been here about 16 years, and I love the Northwest. Um, glad to have you on the show. Dan is a podcaster. He has a show called Hardcore History and a show called Common Sense, and they're two of my favorite shows, and I'm sure you, a lot of you already know about them, but uh, Dan is doesn't count himself as a historian, but somebody who tells history. I'll just, we'll just go right in there, Dan. How is it that you're not a historian? How do you classify what you do?
1: Well, it has to do with your degrees. I mean, a historian is someone mm-hmm. with a doctorate. Uh, I don't have that doctorate. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm a storyteller, really, and we, we attempt as much as possible to be an accurate mm-hmm. storyteller. Uh, it was my mother-in-law's idea, though, because uh, we were already doing the Current Events podcast which grew out of a current events radio show I did Mm -hmm. for a long time. And she said, because I was, I think, regaling her over dinner with some bloody historical story or something, and she said, well, why don't you do a podcast about this? And I said, oh, no, I couldn't do that. I said, I don't have the degree. And she said, I didn't Mm -hmm. know you had to have a doctorate to tell stories. (laughs) And that was the first time a light bulb went on in my head, and you start thinking, okay, if I wanted to do that from an enthusiastic point of view— what what would you do to compensate for the fact that you don't have these mm-hmm. degrees and so it's been an evolutionary process figuring out how to do that i guess you could say
0: well that's the crazy thing is the compensating mechanisms themselves is is one of the like one of the a wild nuance of humanity is when you're compensating for one thing out of that often comes something totally unexpected and positive so just you know physical senses or people with you know Things that aren't your strength usually compensate another way. And out of that comes all kind of interesting stuff. And your podcast is a great example of that, given, given that fact. And it's also really DIY, which is something that I and in the music community people embrace. It's like, you can do it. You can figure it out yourself. You can create something unique and original. And uh, y- who cares? Who cares what the man says or the gatekeepers and stuff like that? So that's really interesting about you too, because you did come out of traditional media uh, in the first place. Isn't that right?
1: I did I was a I was a television reporter a long time ago now and I was a uh, radio talk show guy for a long time and one of the things I really like about the podcasting though and I tell everybody who does podcasting that there's an evolution to it as you go I mean I've been podcasting now for ten years and I can tell you right now we do it very differently than we did it ten years ago mm-hmm. and I think that's everybody's experience. And so when we talk about the difference between what you think you're going to do when you say, you know, I think I want to do a show and I think the show should be about this Mm -hmm. and you sit down and do it. And several years later, you go, man, you know, I had no idea it was going to evolve into this, which might be quite a bit different than your original conception. Absolutely. If you look at television shows and you look at your favorite television show and you go look at the first few episodes, it's clear that it wasn't what it was going to be yet, that it takes a while for everything to sort of, begin to mesh and click together. And so the Hardcore History podcast we do today is the result of literally years of evolution and things sort of evolving towards what I hope is a better show, certainly a longer show. So we've been doing it a long time. No,
0: absolutely, and that's part of it. I just started watching the season one of Seinfeld, uh, and I just can't believe how undeveloped the characters are and how bad it is, but yet it made it through and found its legs and is, you know, turned into the show that it is. Wait. That's
1: actually the show I use as the example. I say oh, Seinfeld really? wasn't Seinfeld for the first ten or fifteen episodes.
0: No, definitely not. Definitely not at all. And that's that's the other thing about it is, mo- you know, podcasts are notorious for people start them and have a good idea and then they just quit. Uh, essentially, most people quit after two or three episodes. Do so, they? Is that true? Yeah, it is. It is the, the statistics something like I don't know if it's three, but people, everybody starts one and thinks that'll be great, and then they lose motivation. And I think that is the case with. Almost everything in life, I, you know, you can almost divide people up by that. Um, I put it this way: How many things have you put thousands of hours into that you failed at? Almost nobody. The question is: Do you have the motivation to do it long enough to get good at it? That's that's really um, a bigger question than are you good enough at a thing? It's just it's,
1: it's funny you say that though, because one of the chief pieces of advice I give to new podcasters, if they haven't done it before is that you ought to do your first three or four shows and then throw them out. Yes. Never never release them. Yes. And that way you get all of your rookie mistakes out, you get all of your hesitation out, and then by the time you do what the audience thinks is your first show, Mm -hmm. it's really more like your fifth show. Right. And you've worked out a lot of the kinks by then, and so... According to what you just told me, most people wouldn't even make it to their first show. Well, first
0: it, other. well, th- here's the thing: people are real narcissistic, and they go, "Yeah, I want to do this. I have this great idea. I'm awesome." And then they send. I, I do a lot of podcast advising, and people send them to me, and I say, "Well, that's, that's great. I mean, but you know, do a couple more what I call pilots, and then you'll we'll see." And they're like, "Yeah, I know, but I really like what I just did." And I'm like, "Well." that you're not willing to throw if you're not willing to throw out your first episode you you're just not you don't want to learn <laughs> you know you don't want to take chris's i mean you're almost doomed if you think you're that awesome at when you start because when you get to episode five you'll feel like okay i kind of know what i'm doing now and then i tell them well envision episode 50 how good you'll be and when you get to episode 50 i bet you'll totally have a grip on the fact that man I'm going to be so good when I get to episode 150. And that is the the motivation part I'm talking about. If you can have that teachable learning part where you're, you can get into something and know you're not that great at it and you aspire to be better and you're still motivated during the process, now you're on your way. That's the way I think of it at least.
1: I always tell young people it's a pity that they live in this era where nothing ever disappears. You know, I mean when you do your first podcast, mm-hmm. that ain't going anywhere forever. Yeah. As I would say, it's like like carved That's in true. digital stone. <laughs> and the problem with that, of course, is when I was doing radio. When I would do a terrible show that was embarrassing to me, it's off in the ether. And if you didn't hear it when it was live, you never heard it. And so those things are all gone, and by the time I started podcasting, all those kind of you know, rookie mistakes are gone and you never hear them. Some poor guy starting today or some poor gal starting today, it's all going to be out there. So better that you get rid of your first four or five shows, if you ask me.
0: Yeah, and then the worst part of that is people that did stuff in the era where they thought it was in the ether and then the revenge of the Internet brought it back later, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm sure happens too. But tell me, Dan, what, you know, in traditional media – I want to know because I've I've always come out of the DIY build yourself up independent music touring and then you get up into the world of big labels and major labels at some point kind of thing, uh, and then it, it gets weird. I mean the, the stuff that goes on with the the big money and the major label stuff in music it's it's not you know that's that's never been the ethic and the stuff that I think is the best music and it's not as you know there's lots of negative things about it. Uh, what do you feel about? were you was it incompatible what you wanted to do with mainstream media and the big guys and and the money involved there? does it is it is it is it that that stuff can't be good, or can that stuff be good too?
1: Well, I mean, I think everybody's case is different. In mm-hmm. my case, uh, I was always uh, the odd man out when it came to radio in the sense that you know if you look at music categories on a radio station playlist and you have your adult contemporary and you have mm-hmm. your alternative or whatever it might be, the job of the person who's putting that music together is to make sure that all of the various things that you're playing on there in terms of songs matches the format, right? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't want to throw some pop thing into your alternative station very Mm -hmm. often without a good warning for the audience. For me, I was on, as most people understand when you listen to American talk radio. It's 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 often very conservative, very loud, a lot of hyperbole. Uh-huh. And I wasn't that guy. I mean, I was loud. I'm still loud. But but I mean, I, I didn't really fit in politically with any of the people that were either before or after my show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I stay, I managed to keep the job somehow, but it was always a fight with the program directors and the consultants and everyone who thought that you should just be able to flip a switch and turn yourself into. Whatever they wanted. And and my argument was about authenticity. Right. And 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 listen, believe me, I worked with a bunch of people who said, oh, we're changing formats. No problem. I'm the new guy, too. I can do that. too." (laughs) Uh, You mean even with political ideology and stuff, they would just switch it. and, And, you know, some would argue that that's a skill that maybe I don't have. But I was never able to do that. And and the wonderful thing about podcasting when it came around is it was an opportunity to say, listen, um, you're not going to sandwich me between two hosts who are very different than I am, whose audiences I get to fight with mm-hmm. when, when I take over the day part um, and 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 develop an audience that at least has an expectation of what they're going to get. And and I can do it any way I want to. And the wonderful thing about having some success in podcasting is there's a, a wonderful little bit of sweet revenge in it, in the sense that all those years I was fighting those radio program directors, mm-hmm. if they had just left me alone, we might have we might have done better.
0: hmm No, I mean that's the classic thing is like the, the, the suits and the executive producers like that don't really know trying to weigh in and, and make bottom line decisions, but that's not where good art or media ever comes from. I mean, usually Uh, comes from somewhere and then becomes mainstream. And when you try to synthesize it or cater to something that's usually, you know, it's not going to be innovative at least. And that's really what everybody wants. But do you think where, and that was a while back when you were doing that 10 years ago or more, I guess. But do you think at this point the whole thing it, it, is the media system corrupt? I mean, how are we, somebody like me, how am I supposed to trust it or even say I'm an informed person knowing all the corruption and, or at least profit-driven motives behind the producers and the talent on air that are delivering me my news?
1: That's a complicated question in the sense that it was always a complicated question even 15 years ago before we had the kind of expansion in the outlets and whatnot and Mm -hmm. now with with all of the extra stuff that's out there it's just made it more complex i think you know i mean i wonder and, and i may be too old to answer that question properly in the sense that if i were coming up today and had to learn how to filter news i'm not sure how i would develop that skill whereas when I came up, it was still about newspapers. And mm-hmm. and where I learned to read newspapers was in newsrooms. And in the morning, you know, I remember having the morning shift at, uh, at TV news stations in L.A. And you'd have to get there at like 4 a.m. And your your real hot part of the day was at like 6 a.m. when the morning news was on. Mm-hmm. And then about 8, when it all sort of calmed down, the rest of the day was kind of cake. And you would sit around and read 12 newspapers or whatever that had been delivered to the station, and you become really adept at comparing, you know, the exact same story Mm -hmm. as treated by this newspaper versus as treated by that newspaper. Nowadays, by the way, it is so often... Common for one reporter's report to be copied in multiple different newspapers. Whereas back in the day, you could read the same news story as reported by five different reporters from five different angled newspapers a conservative newspaper, a leftist newspaper, whatever and then compare and contrast. And then you learn more as a reporter when you actually go to some of these events Mm -hmm. and then read about it the next day and say, wait a minute, that doesn't match anything like what I just saw in person the day before. Uh And so I don't don't know how a person without that life experience develops their own filters but they obviously do because there's a lot of people who are really savvy out there who came to it through their own path.
0: Well, what I mean specifically though is there is there all right. What can we throw out whole cloth news wise from your point of view? I mean can, is CNN and Fox News are they even in the realm of stuff that you should listen to or is it just is it just too gone now?
1: Well, it's a hard question because within within the broadcasts of all those programs are true facts. The problem is, is you have to be able to find them, like mm-hmm. panning for gold in a river when you're the last guy there, and everything's been sort of picked clean. And, and trying to, to figure out biases, I mean, a wonderful way to do it now, and we didn't have this uh, ability back in the day very easily, is you can compare internet websites the way I used to compare newspapers. So you can say to yourself, okay, there's something, for example, going on maybe in Ukraine involving the Russians. So I'm going to go read something from RT, which is considered to be yep. sort of a mouthpiece of the Russian government. Then I'm going to go read something by the neoconservative folks over at the Weekly Standard who are going to give me the exact opposite viewpoint. Then I'm going to go read some different newspapers in Ukraine who give me an English language report from their version, knowing that they all have biases too. Mm-hmm. And, and and you create a mosaic of reality, if you will, from the different viewpoints that these people are giving you. Now, you still have to be interpretive. But Dan, nobodys I don't know anybody that does that, though. You don't? No. That's not how everybody does
0: no. it? No. Of course not, Dan. They just see the most confirmation bias thing possible that they like and they just kind of, I don't even think they read the article, they just uh, see the headline and say, yep, I, I thought that was the case about the old Bill Clinton, you know, that's that's, that's what people well, do. this
1: is what being a news junkie does to you, though. Mm-hmm. See, for me, me, those things aren't work. Yeah. You would get up in the morning. I'm going to be reading the newspaper whether or not my job's connected with it. So I don't, I mean, it's like people say, what do you do to stay informed for your job? And I just do what I always do. They mm-hmm. make it sound like it's some special thing. I, have to, I just, I get up and I start the process of going to all these websites that I would do if I was a plumber because yeah. you know, that's just how I am so I don't know how anyone else does it
0: yeah no but the, I'm I'm telling you that most people don't have that but the the thing that's interesting about it is you 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 just said the word bias several times uh, the word bias is like the most one of the most important words and concepts to me I'm a um, extremely analytical kind of a non-emotional person and I find other people to be wildly the opposite but uh, y- bias elimination is the way that the the way i try to go through life is the my principal thing and that's what you're saying you have to do with these news sources but more specifically you talk about your whole frame of the way that you do things and you you use the term and i don't know if i'm saying it exactly right but you say you have a martian perspective um, and i i say i look at stuff like a robot or something like that but that rings true to me because and i would like to know the origin of how you came up with that thing about the martian perspective but the, but it's always along the lines of like what if you came down here from mars and observed what was going on and i guess in that case you've shed the uh, the cultural biases and the, the you know and you, you can analyze things a little bit more clearly so can you tell me a little bit more about how you came to that and what, what that's about
1: I would say that your interpretation is more sophisticated actually, and and nuanced than than mine. Uh, The the way that came up about it, it's funny because I'll I'll say it today and, and, and it doesn't make sense to people, but I'll explain why. Back when I started doing current events, radio and whatnot, my viewpoints were so off the map and they used to say, that the audience should understand where you will stand on every political issue within five minutes of turning your show on, which to me is like a cartoon character. I mean, I don't know how you, but but that shows you, I mean, turn on your radio now and listen to some talk radio, and, and you'll see that that's what they're trying to make it so that you understand instantly what the branding is, what to expect. In my case, it was so off the wall, and I had no Easy terms that I could use. I couldn't call myself a liberal or a conservative and have it be true. So I had no shorthand way to describe myself. And eventually you just start saying, you know, a wonderfully unthreatening and let's be honest, unsophisticated. I'm not trying to say I'm a liberal anarcho capital. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you know, there's these wonderful terms that you still have to get a book out and figure out the definition of Mm -hmm. after you read them. But if I tell you I'm Martian, you know, well, whatever he is, he's not he's off the map. Mm-hmm. And, and and it also sounded pretty non-threatening. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah, dis, and, and, is and disarming
0: dis- is what it is. Yes, and yeah. it doesn't
1: say I know I'm Mister Know It All. You know, yeah. um, Because I'm obviously the odd guy out. Yeah. So so I looked at that as a disarming way to just say, listen, don't feel threatened by what I have to say, but it's going to sound unusual, and you can laugh it off if you want to, or you can say, hmm, well that's interesting. Let's talk more about this. And so it became part of you know, there's um. There's a term in radio, and I don't know how much it's understood much outside of radio, but it's imaging. And part of how your imaging goes is, you know, am I a liberal or conservative? Am I the fast-talking uh, pontificator, or am I the young up-and-coming? There's a whole lot of little boxes they'll try mm-hmm. to put you into. By using Martian, I created my own box. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what happened.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting, but and it's, it is disarming in a way, and, but it really does, it really does work. Because it it allows you an outside point of view that's unassuming and it's just it's observational in a in a pure sense. I I resonate with that uh, very much. Think it's an effective uh, it's it's an effective tool for sure. So
1: I'll tell you what's weird though is that when I was doing that 15 years ago, I needed to. Nowadays, people hear me and they'll say. I don't think he sounds so Martian. I know a lot of people who think like that. Yes. And, and it's really, it's almost like the times have caught up with my viewpoints. And I they think don't, so. you know, I'll still, I'll still image myself sometimes like I'm some wacko. Uh, and then everybody, I, one guy called me on it once. He said, would you stop saying that? Would you stop being so self-deprecating about your political viewpoints? Because if I feel that same way you do, what are you saying about my viewpoints? Mm-hmm. And I, I had to sort of <laughs> rethink it then.
0: Well, but that but that's the thing. If if, you're, if we're coming out of the past and we have this ability, like what you're saying, is a balanced or a nuanced or an interesting or an odd point of view had no place in traditional media until ten years ago. I mean, we didn't have the technology or the niche audience to be able to communicate nuanced or complex sets of views. They had to well, be but, all... but look
1: at the limitations. Right. I, sh- I should suggest that. I mean, for example, with radio, you have to assume in radio that you have people joining the, the program and leaving the program all the time. Right. And so if you want to start some discussion that's going to take you a while to develop the conversation, what happens when people are dropping off and come... That's why you hear every radio announcer in talk radio give what's called a reset mm-hmm. when they come back from the break. So they can catch up with people who just stepped into the car or whatever and may have missed stuff. But it keeps you from ever going beyond the very surface level stuff because you can't assume that the same people are listening throughout the whole program. Whereas in podcasting, instantly the freedom... To assume that not only were they listening to the whole show, but that they had some sort of conception of wanting to be there as opposed to being some guy sure. who turns the radio on to the same station every day and listens through the entire day, and you just happen to be this guy who interrupts his, his conservative talk radio day part or whatever, mm-hmm. and he doesn't really want to listen to you, whereas podcasting... They sought you out specifically. Massive. So were, yeah, a number yeah. of things that changed the entire um, framework of things.
0: It was massively different. And so I'm not, uh, you know, blaming anybody for being evil in that regard. That just was what it is. But, and I don't want to be so presumptive to say we've crossed the threshold now to where all the, the floodgates are open and everybody can learn everything. But I am a little bit optimistic in that regard that we have the ability now to uh, really get nuanced and complex points of view and sets of points of view out there uh, in the realm, especially in politics and stuff like that. And I'm curious in your view of systems and political systems, and you talk a lot about things like revolution and possible change and outsiders and in this last political season has been insane. Do Do you have any sense or belief that we, that there even is the ability for large scale change in, in big, big systems? And know it's a little bit of a topic shift, but do you think, that systems like our government can can change or can be changed, you know, on, in a large scale way. That or, or are we locked in?
1: Well, again, complex question in the sense that obviously, to a certain degree, you're always locked in. Mm-hmm. But there are so many historical examples you can point to where something happens that unlocks things temporarily. Mm-hmm. I mean. Uh, I discuss all these different turning points in U.S. history where, in a very short period of time, the country can change radically. So look at a nine eleven attack, for mm-hmm. example, and how quickly things changed where you would have sworn the day before that attack that it wasn't capable of doing that. Um, also, I think there's this attitude sometimes, too. That, that you'll look at the history of, of government action. So, for example, take the war on poverty in the 1960s, and people will say things like, well, you could see how badly that failed, therefore that means there should be no war on poverty in the future. What I always try to point out is, listen, everything is prone to failure, whether you're talking, and you would mentioned earlier, people being prone to failure or whatever. That's no reason to say, well, that proves it can never be done, um, otherwise there wouldn't be functioning governments in the world. I mean, the, the, the funny thing for Americans is when you get out and travel, as I know many of your listeners know this already, you can actually go to countries where you're a little stunned how well they seem to work mm-hmm. be- because we're under this impression sort of that nothing really works quite as well as our own place. But you know, they have different problems and they have different situations. So you go to a place like Scandinavia. And I used to uh, have a good friend in Scandinavia, and we used to joke about why you couldn't make a Scandinavian system work in the United States. And I was joking that it was because we naturally seize opportunities that the Swedes would never seize. You know, for example, um, we were were joking about getting on the freeway in Los Angeles. And she said to me that she couldn't understand why it was such a fight. You know, you had to work your way on and you had to sneak a spot. And she said in Sweden, they would have been automatically the left, right, situation would have worked the left car would have gone then the right car would have gone and i joked with her and said that's why you people aren't good capitalists like we are we have to fight to even get on the freeway yeah it's part of the fabric yeah and if you gave us all the benefits you swedes have we would take total advantage and she laughed and said maybe you're right maybe this works because it's swedes in a swedish system but Mm -hmm. when you go there Boy, it sure seems to work. So I think it's a question of how governments evolve. And maybe, as my wife was talking to me about the other day, maybe it's a question of size. And you look at our situation here with a design that was meant to work for 13 small colonies on a basic eastern seaboard. And now we are the global superpower trying to make this same framework expand well enough to do that. You might argue that that it's a systems um overheating
0: kind of thing it's all patches and and band-aids that's right
1: it's a broken uh, Mm -hmm. uh, brittle system yeah
0: so you talk about that like it's like there's these points like 9-11 and a thing I really liked on the Hardcore History and I what's that is it Prophets of Doom is that the one that's the the Reformation yes okay good that one is the same thing like that one's interesting I love that one because it's uh, it's just a there's just a flashpoint there's like all these things boiling up but in real time, when you have all these, uh, man, you're so much better explaining than me, so I'll, I'll let you take over here. But there was a bunch of factors leading up to that that weren't. You, you couldn't have clearly seen them until after they happened, until after the bang or flashpoint happened there.
1: Yeah, destabilizing influences, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Martin Luther, and, and everybody, please forgive me on this trying to remember something from many years ago, but but, but Martin Luther and Protestantism by itself was a huge destabilizing factor. Yes. Um, and, and, and those are, you know, some historians call those hinge points. I mean, there's all kinds of mm-hmm. words to, to define these things that all of a sudden open up the door to a new world. Not necessarily a better world, by the way you know it's a little bit like uh, uh, one of those game shows where they say do you want to do you want to take behind what's behind door number one and you don't know if it's something great or something awful that's kind of how i see history unfolding and when these hinge points happen it's an opportunity for positive change and and new things and sometimes it's an opportunity for disaster and the the sad thing about being a human being living in it is we're so close to it it's hard to get perspective and 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 see it carefully, you know, and and some of these decisions we make, we would really benefit if we could put some more care into it, but that's kind of a hard thing for human beings to do when we're so close to the the photo, we can't really see what it is.
0: All right, sorry for the interruption here, but I got to tell you about our sponsor for the show today, and it's none other than Loot Crate. So, are you on a quest for epic gear? housewares, and collectibles this holiday season? Well, Loot Crate offers an epic range of pop culture items for less than 20 bucks a month. Whether you're shopping for the geek in your life or you are the geek, Loot Crate is the best surprise you know is coming. Let me take a second there and address this geek issue here. Now, I'm a little bit irritated that over time we've lost the ability to make fun of nerds and geeks and dorks. I think you can still make fun of dorks, but... Nerds and geeks have somehow become in fashion, and I know a lot of you guys out there are geeks and nerds, and you're probably proud of it, and that's fine. It leaves me with less names to pick on people with, which is a little bit of a problem, but congratulations to you, uh, Subculture, for becoming mainstream, all you dorks, geeks, nerds. Um, problem with that is I certainly probably qualify as one of those. I understand that, but I still mourn the loss of the term. Anyway, every month there's a different theme and new exclusive items you can only get with Loot Crate. Treat yourself every month or give the gift of geeking out to a friend or loved one. They're always watching. They've designed a system to keep you down. They're meddlesome. Hello, friends. It's time for a revolution. Fight the power and pave the way for a brighter tomorrow with December's Rebellious Crate featuring exclusive items from Assassin's Creed, Mr. Robot, Firefly, and more, including an exclusive Funko Pop figure, our monthly t-shirt, and pin. So, here's the deal. You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when that cutoff happens, that's it it's over. So let me tell you how to do it. You head to lootcrate.com slash down and you enter the promo code gifting15 to save 15% off any new subscription today. They've got tons of stuff over there. They've got anime things. They've got a ton of stuff my family likes and I like, and I think you'll like too. So go to lootcrate.com, enter the promo code gifting 15 and you'll get 15% off their deepest discount they've ever given on any new subscription today. Last time, lootcrate.com forward slash down promo code gifting 15. So everybody's been so wrong throughout this last political season. And Me too though, so be careful what you ask. No, I know, but you say that you've been wrong about everything so far, which is so thrilling to hear a personality or somebody say that. Like that in itself is quite endearing, but you and everybody else and you say i've been so wrong about what would happen with trump and what's going on here um does it are you optimistic at all that our system can improve or change now or is it are you are you more more frightened
1: well let me be clear why i was so wrong about trump and i think it's important that we examine when we're wrong why we're wrong because it helps us sort of tweak our our framework a little bit and maybe incorporate you know some things that help you avoid those same errors in the future mm-hmm. in the case of trump I felt, as many of the other media did, not to put myself in the same class, but, but that Trump would say something that disqualified him at some point and that that's what would happen. So I wasn't wrong about that. Trump said multiple <laughs> yeah, yeah, dis- disqualifying sure. things. Yeah. What I was wrong about and where I've, I'm still trying to tweak the system so that I account for this is the reaction the American people might have to what he said. Mm-hmm. And as we said on the show, there was one of two things going on. Either the American people did not have the same reaction to what he said as the as the mainstream media thought they should have, if somebody says that they certainly would never be elected president and yet people thought, I don't have a problem with what he said, I'll vote for that, or... They're so tired to get back to what you were saying earlier about being misled or what have you Mm -hmm. by the media that their attitude is, as far as I'm concerned, you're on the other team and I'm not going to listen to what you say and put their fingers in their ears and go, la, 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 la. And so in a sense, the funny thing was, is we were all right about Trump. We were all wrong about the way voters would react to Trump doing what he did. Mm -hmm. So the
0: the more difficult question is, is Trump a random wrecking ball to the system or – Is he calculated on that? Did he know that? What does well, he think?
1: I, I think where people make the mistake is they invest too much in Trump's role in all this, where I think he's a beneficiary. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's the cause. I think he's – I mean, I think this is and, – and this is where I have a problem with Americans sometimes is we are such short-term thinkers when it comes to history, and somebody will want to blame something on the Obama administration or the Bush administration beforehand, and you like to point out to people that the problems that have Americans so upset today are, are three to four decades in the making. It's taken that long to get to this point. So when Trump is the beneficiary of Americans' anger, it's anger that's taken 35 years to manifest. He couldn't possibly be the guy who started it, but he's certainly the guy that, that at some point during this campaign figured out how to harness it and use it. And he's become very adept at knowing which buttons to push and what reactions he's going to get when he touches each individual button. Mm-hmm. That's a talent right there for any politician.
0: Absolutely. Do given your – amount of pontification about history and and seeing hinge points and stuff like that, do you get any kind of sense we're we're near one? Or is, it, is that knowledge that's uh, uh, inaccessible to, to those in the present?
1: Well, uh, first of all, you have to bear into mind that I, I'm cynical about this stuff. So mm-hmm. you're going to get a cynical answer. Uh, my feeling, and we said this on the show, is that you're going to have a really nasty next presidential election. And yes. The reason why is because the people who elected... Donald Trump this time and think that they're going to get the change that they want are going to be disappointed, mm-hmm. either because the candidate will let them down or because of what you mentioned earlier, the inefficiency of the system, the inability for it to actually, you know, the, the the U.S. government and all large governments are sometimes compared to giant ships, and they take a long time and a lot of effort to turn. I don't think the electorate's feeling all that patient. I think there's, there's a huge chance that they're going to be very disappointed, and if they're disappointed exponentially greater than they were disappointed in this election, what's the next election oh, look like? I can't and what imagine. are the candidates who are going to tap into that? What are they going to be like?
0: Right, there has to be opportunists now. They're looking like, whoa, Ab- oh absolutely. shit, that worked? Well, watch this. And I mean, absolutely. you know, that may be even more calculated or adept than Trump at tapping it. Who knows? And I, I maybe know. on
1: the other side of the political spectrum. It doesn't yep. have to go the same way. I mean, I think people are sometimes on this, on this mental uh, track where they think, okay, the next person will just be Trump, but one level down the line greater it could be bernie sanders one level down the line greater yep. or something martian for <laughs> lack of a better
0: word yeah no that's that's really really something to, to think about um do you do, do you enjoy the history more than the the common sense and the political well
1: there's that's one exactly, your hobby I, and I, one i'm glad you asked know. that i'm going to get a chance to explain something it's one of those it's a personal thing actually mm-hmm. but i burn out on the politics in my career. I mean, Mike, if you look at my career, it shows that I stopped doing radio a couple of times voluntarily because I, you know, it's funny. I, I, there's a tendency to think of people who talk about politics and current events as, as entertainers, but I took it seriously. And I think when you invest your emotions and and your heart into this stuff, that, that you can't sustain it past a certain amount of disappointment Mm -hmm. and, and, and and this is why this election I think has been so particularly hard for me because I couldn't imagine getting an outsider in for so long and you finally get someone who's an outsider but he's the wrong outsider for your <laughs> political beliefs. To, yeah. I mean so 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 yeah I think the, the the fun thing about history for me is that that never gets old. I don't get that feeling of burned out um that I get about politics sometimes and like sometimes I will find myself getting involved in causes or, or I will um, occasionally be tempted to lead some movement uh, in this direction or reform this or do that. And and it doesn't take very long when you go down that road to be disappointed and go, Oh man, that just took what little energy I had for politics, you know, and, and threw it out the window. So I, I think like many other Americans who get invested in this stuff, eventually it takes its toll on you. So, yep. I do get tired is not the right word disappointed, um, in the political stuff sometimes, in which case I worry that that creeps into the sound of my voice or the <laughs> hopefulness that you might have yeah. or, or, or interferes with, with, with the normal nuance and rationality that your <laughs> audience expects from you. But yes, I mean, I think like most people, it's easy to get disappointed by us politics.
0: You know, you, you use the word cynical earlier and I was discussing this on another podcast, but, uh, you know, cynical is characterized by versus skepticism. So skepticism is uh, a little more scientific or a, a process of kind of uncovering truth systematically. And cynical is more like hopeless. There's, you've been disappointed, thus there's it's only mistrust kind of thing. So those words are used, you know, interchangeably to some degree, but you, you actually identify as a cynical, like there's no hope for it. Well, I, But
1: I do because what ends up happening is, is I mean, like in this case, the odds of getting an outsider candidate as far as Donald Trump got, obviously winning, if I'd have told you 10, 12 years ago that would happen, you would have, in Vegas, have put the, it would be astronomical, uh, yeah, the odds yeah, you would absolutely. have Absolutely. So then to get that and have it still not be what you're after. I Absolutely. Mean, to me, that, that's a little soul crushing personally.
0: It is. It is. And, and as somebody that advocates for the outsider, yeah, you're right, you finally get one. But maybe it's is it not heartening in the sense that at least it's possible for there to be an outsider, but I guess the, the thing now is even when you get the outsider, they start to make decisions that seem pretty normal once they get in there.
1: Well, I think that's why we predict a maybe scary election in 4 years because mm-hmm. I think I think, and bear in mind, we've been wrong up until now, so uh, <laughs> That's right. uh, the track record is not great on the Donald Trump question, but I think based on the kind of people you're seeing him consider for particular jobs, this is going to be much more of a status quo election than most people thought, which it tends to be. I mean, it's it's the easy pick if you're trying to sound like you really know what you're talking about. But I mean, you know, if this is draining the swamp, I mean, he's, he's, he's allying with people who are urinating in the swamp and have been for mm-hmm. three decades. So I mean, Mitch McConnell, the other day at the Senate, said, "I don't think people are really that interested in draining the swamp." Well, of course, he said that. He'd be the first person you would kick be, out. That's right. So, so I, I do think that, in that sense, people are going to find when Trump doesn't deliver on this, maybe because it's impossible to do, or maybe because he goes with the flow, or maybe because he never quite, in- I, I mean, I, I don't know what the reasoning may be, but if people are disappointed, they're going to be even angrier and more cynical, or, you know, potentially they could just be disappointed and drop out, figuring, you know, nothing you do makes any difference, so I'm going to go live my life and try to build my career and worry about my kids. And and this is sometimes where I get with politics, where and you beat your head against the wall long enough figuring you're not really making a difference, you start wondering what the opportunity costs of that are. Where else could I be putting my time? I could I be doing a better history podcast or more of them? Or, so you start wondering about whether or not it's all worth it. Um, that comes and goes.
0: <laughs> well, that answers one question that I had that isn't really important, but it seems like on Common Sense, on that podcast in particular, it seems to me that you could do a lot more of those episodes. I don't, I don't know that they require the same amount of research and effort as the Hardcore History ones. So it almost seems like, I'm sure people ask you that, why couldn't you just do that once a week, at least, but that you probably have answered that question by saying you don't want to spend I, all your time sure in that going world. Going to the
1: moon requires <laughs> as much energy as doing a hardcore history yeah. episode. So that's not, But here's the thing: I mean, if you go back and you look, we have more than 300 episodes of Common Sense right now. So we obviously used to have a release schedule that was that was a a little bit more abundant than what we mm-hmm. do now. Um, I remember cranking out those shows. I used to be able to walk into the studio nine years ago. And on a good day, walk out of that studio 45 minutes later with a common sense show done and in our pockets. I haven't been able to do that in a long time. And part of the reason why is because, you know, again, to get back to our radio example, if you're doing radio, you repeat the same things over and over again. And it's not only okay, it's the right way to do it considering the limitations of the medium Mm -hmm. in podcasting. It's not the right thing to do because you can go back and listen to my podcast from three podcasts ago. There's no reason to repeat that same thing, but after 300 podcasts, you're working pretty darn hard to try to make the ground you've already walked on a lot of times look a little less undisturbed and find new ways to approach similar topics, and so it becomes harder to do the larger your archive of past episodes gets.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. That makes a lot of sense. I'd like to talk about something different, just history, the subject, or history as a subject, and I can't remember where or how much in depth you went into it. I didn't catch much but the concept of it, but you said something that once along the lines of some people believe that history shouldn't be a subject in school or uh, an area of study because it's that's too limiting for what it is as in everything out there has a history automobiles people cultures it's not just it's not just something you would learn history is all encompassing so to define it as a subject in 7th period is is limited and i i would i'm a huge critic and disappointed with and not a big fan of education, education system, go figure. I'm not big on the political system. I'm not big on the education system. But I loved it when you said that. And I was wondering if you could tell me more about that or what the alternative would be.
1: It's because you're cynical. That's why.
0: I might Um, be. I might be. (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, actually, I know what you're talking about. I I, I was asked to, um, George Lucas, the filmmaker, has a project called Edutopia, where he tries to figure out how to bring in new voices into how we teach various subjects. And they asked me about history, and I told them the same thing that I told you. I said, I'm not qualified to come on Edutopia and tell history teachers how to teach history. But they said, no, 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 we're looking for outsider viewpoints. And so what I had said to them was that the problem with history, the way we teach it, is, is it cuts so many people out of the equation because we're only teaching what you might call big political history right as a super narrow fact that history is everything that's ever happened so my point to talking about and 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 in other words there are people that have to sit down if you're if you're writing an 11th grade history textbook and say okay what are the important events that every 11th grader has to know and that we are going to test them on and and truthfully when you realize how many people actually remember that stuff once they're out of 11th grade you start to realize that if they're not retaining it, it wasn't all that important for them to know anyway. Mm-hmm. So how can you teach the other aspects of history if they're not going to know these important events mm-hmm. and people, because that won't stick with them? Can you teach them process? Can you teach them the part of history that helps give context? Uh-huh. And you don't need big political history to do that. Any any development of any topic over time will teach you that same thing. So for example... I said what if you just took the kids and said what's your favorite subject in the world or your favorite topic or your favorite hobby or your favorite interest there's a history to Absolutely. that Absolutely art if history you're into motorcycles, whatever cycles you can go look at the motorcycle you like today and then look at the motorcycle that was the version that led up to that and trace it all the way back to the first motorcycle, and you can see how things develop, how you get from A to B to C. That's the historical process. You don't have to know about the Battle of Waterloo and Napoleon and the year it happened to understand context and that the history of motorcycles will actually teach you the same historical process that's used to understand the Battle of Waterloo and how military history developed. I mean, it's this from getting from here to there. Yeah, and, this is, is, and 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 so what we advocated on Edutopia was stop picking the historical topics for the kids to have to learn. Find what they like anyway, then let them learn the history of that.
0: Yes, because that's how learning works. I mean, learning works when you actually learn something when you have a place in your brain that uh, you have a receptor for, like you're interested in sports, then of course you know who won the World Series in 95. I mean, you can retain that knowledge because you had a place for it. Or if you're learning like audio, I do audio and and stuff like that. So when I finally found a book that told me how EQs and compressors worked, I was dying for that information, and it locked right in. And so, I mean, and, and not only that, history is like how people and systems work and grow. So very valuable, regardless of if it's the Battle of Hastings or not.
1: Right, and it's all connected. So it's like Wikipedia's links to other things. You'll you'll be studying the history of motorcycles because you're into motorcycles, and all of a sudden there'll be this side thing. Oh, I'm really yeah. in, though, to spark plugs. I got interested in that. So all of a sudden, now you're on the history of spark plugs, and you begin to build what the science historian James Burke has, has called a knowledge web of, of information. Like my kids uh, right now, uh, my oldest has a similar brain to mine in the sense that she will get interested in a subject intensely Mm -hmm. for six months to a year, learn everything about it, become obsessed. And then her interest never goes away in it, but she moves on to another one. Yeah. That's good. Never forgets what she learned last time. So I told her, you're, you're developing nodes of knowledge so that when you're 25 years old and you've been going through this process for 25 years, you're going to have several deep reservoirs of knowledge that Absolutely. you've built up over the years that eventually will start to connect in yes, places. Overlap. Yeah, and, yep. Yes, overlap. So yes. So you're building a mental web. And, and so this is when when people talk about learning history, I keep asking why they need to graduate. No, it's like, It's like if you're not going to use a lot of math, why do you need a lot of higher math in school if you're going to forget it? If you're going to forget it, what's the point? So you start saying, okay, so how can we teach stuff that's actually useful to people's ability to put things into a context? Or we talked about a mosaic of news earlier. Well, to understand a mosaic is even something where you want to teach people the process of viewing and and diagramming and then distilling a mosaic as opposed to saying i want you to learn what's in the left hand corner of the mosaic then i want you to learn what's next to that and 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 so i think it's it's a completely different approach but i would argue that educators know this already and that they understand that you know we talked about can you change government when it becomes so entrenched and brittle well i mean the educational system that we use now is a hundred years old
0: yeah built
1: for a time to educate people so that they could be useful in factories or counting change back at a Mm -hmm. cash register, one would argue, and a lot of educators have, that that's a very outdated system, but try changing it. (laughs) Right, right. right. I mean, it's massively complicated and integrated and old, and I mean, it's the same thing. You could use a similar um, analogy with government. So, I mean,
0: it's interesting because you're a history guy that loves the political history and kings and rulers but at the same time, you're obviously not a snob to think that that's that's what it should be all about, and that learning should take place in a different way. And you're right; the education systems, is, man, is it goofy on a couple levels. One, you know, it's probably made to encourage and conformity and to thwart nonconformists. And then at the same time. Half of it has to do with memorization and information transfer across continents from all the way down, which is completely outdated. I mean, everything that you ever need. I mean, half of history from me growing up was memorized lists of stuff. Well, that's completely useless. I mean, I I can pull up anything I need to know. So what are we doing?
1: Well, my wife was a straight A student, but she says she can't remember most of it now. So she learned it for the test yeah. and she cleared out that part of her brain and refilled it with the next stuff for the next test. Now, I was a C student a lot of the time, mm-hmm. but but doing a lot of research on my own and trying to retain it. Now, you know, there's an old line that the C students run the world. So I'm going to hope that that line is true. But 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 it's, Me the too. Between, <laughs> it's the difference between learning stuff for now and learning stuff forever. Uh, Your brain is a computer. You're putting data in it. It's only helpful if you can then get that data out when you need it, and it's only helpful if it's data that you will someday need. Yeah. Well,
0: you know, I think the interesting place we're heading, and I think your show or your shows touch on it a little bit. I have this little pet theory that I'm sure somebody else has better, and there's a good explanation for it, but I'm stumbling into it as I study podcasting, entertainment, and information. And I think – in the same way that if you eat candy, you feel like you like it and you feel good about it, but you feel a little bit guilty. Uh, and if you if you were able to eat something that was really healthy for you and it t- also tasted good, I think your, your brain and your psyche rewards that. And so I don't see a lot of people going on iTunes U and listening to history lectures, for instance, even though it's possible and it's available and it's good for you to learn. There's a million things you can learn that people don't. But if you can get something like a podcast where you're purely entertained and you know it's enriching, I think the brain, and maybe this is evolutionary, I'm thinking maybe it is, I think your brain rewards that. I think your brain locks in and feels like, wow, I'm captivated by story or entertainment or jokes or, or and stuff like that. And then the fact that you know it's enriching and positive for you, I think your brain is wired to lock you down to that i think and i think that's partly what you tap into
1: well you know it's, it's also partially and it's nobody's fault and i'm kind of glad it went this way but i'm not pretending we didn't lose something in the process if you go pick up a history book from 80 years ago and you start reading it the one difference you will really notice between that and a history book that's an academic history book today is that the one from 80 years ago can often be thrilling it can, it, it can have these stories that just are, are like the great epics in movies and that have the high drama and all these things that make up any epic storytelling. All of the, I mean, you know, Shakespeare cribbed history continually because the great stories of Antony and Cleopatra, I mean, you name it. Now, history, like so many other subjects, in the last... 40 years has become much more rigorous Mm -hmm. and scientific and quantitative and we're getting more accurate history and more nuanced history and more gray area history but with that scientific approach to history where it's become more of a social science and perhaps less something that belongs in the humanities and let's remember the humanities have things like religion and law and language and music and stuff like that as opposed to social sciences which are much more scientific you lose the 80 years ago history with the thrilling because a lot of that was nonsense you still learn hmm. um called uh, james burke who i just referred to a minute ago he called that churchill history so it's 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 told in the grand so the history of the english-speaking peoples and it's rousing stories well it's true stuff mostly but it's not nuanced it's not scientific right. it's not qualitative there's no radiocarbon dating so in in the process of getting better more accurate more scientific history, you lose some of the thrilling parts. And, and what my show does is try to find those stories and still be as accurate as we could be, obviously, but to, to inject that storytelling side into what is a true story. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, I think, and I've heard from a lot of people who are history experts who do this social science stuff for a living, but who were turned onto it by the same 80-year-old approach I was, mm-hmm. who liked to hear the podcast. Now, they know what's wrong with it a lot more than I do, but they're as thrilled by the thrilling stories as I am. We're all fans of history.
0: Yeah, but it, but it just strikes me. I can, a couple of examples I can think of is, you know, there's the show Drunk History. So if not, it's not worth it to sit around and watch drunk people talk, but... Or drunk people talk about something that doesn't matter, but the fact that it's history and you learn something is like, it's just a really nice. And then there's a podcast I listen to sometimes where there's these comedians that improvise stories from history. But if it was just comedians improvising nonsense, I wouldn't care at all, but I feel like I'm hearing a true thing that's real and resonating. It's, it's quite a reward. And so it's, you know, you've always had the point of view of, well, if teachers or educators can make things more entertaining, it would stick better, but it's almost the reverse. We may be going to learn more from entertainers than educators in the future. Like it might be, uh, the market might kind of solve learning in in that regard versus the, from the peer approach of of educators is what I'm kind of hoping for.
1: Well, you know, I might not have a doctorate in history, but I do have a, I do have a BA in history. Mm -hmm. I, I can say that some of my favorite teachers in college who Who were august people with amazing degrees from and who had learned from these fantastic, huge historians of the past. I mean, the the direct lineage that some of these history teachers had was incredible. And yet, I still do impersonations of some of these guys mm-hmm. because they were so good at yeah. what they did in in transmitting this story in a way that resonated, and that you walked out of the out of the room afterwards going, That's incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, and just it would, you'd be jacked up, if you will, for the, and, and, and those people were simply, I mean, I almost think that storytelling is a gene. And I do think that the Irish have a slightly higher proportion Hmm. of the gene than you go to Ireland and they all do
0: it. (laughs) Yeah, I see that.
1: But but it's this, it's this gene where there are good storytellers amongst us. And and if they happen to be historians at the same time, Mm -hmm. that's like the perfect witch's brew for people like me. So I think if I'm, on my game and doing a good job, I'm a little cheaty bit like some of my favorite professors in school, and I'm those sure. people were both historians and storytellers at the same time. Yeah,
0: or, yeah, or inter- entertainers at heart, maybe, but they they awaken the imagination. I never had any good schooling personally, I you know, but I had two good teachers, and those are the only things that uh, other subjects that I ever cared about <laughs> cared about. And just you know, I, I had a good biology teacher who woke up imagination, and every other teacher was just a babysitter or whatever.
1: Look at what a big you know, deal that is! Though. It I mean, was a big what, deal. I went into college about the for impact it. They make on people. Look at what an amazing impact that is to have awakened a whole center of your brain that would have remained untouched, totally. except for that teacher. It
0: was just that one guy woke my imagination and said, "Imagine this, and picture this, and do, think this way." That's all it was, and I went to college for biology pre med, which I eventually. Once I realized what it really was, I skipped out and went to music school after that. But that that my my whole life, life course is I have one and in college. I had one good economics teacher, which is a subject that I understand and enjoy to this day. And just that's all it is. And a very teacher I have is a babysitter. The way I look at it, but I don't know. I think that's it, that's something really interesting about where we're at. But here's a, another thing that I I am curious your take on. What's history going to be like in the future? Because in the past, it's all political leaders. It's all, I mean, there's so much stuff that is left out and missing. And the only thing they wrote down was, you know, the most important of the important and that's what survived and all that stuff. But in the future, we're going to have every, every, everything is recorded now. We have everything. So what, 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 will, what will that do to history as a field in the coming decades and centuries?
1: I always compare it to how my job changed when I went from a big news market to a small news market. When I was in Los Angeles, one of the things I had to do uh, was 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 you know come in and decide what stories we were gonna cover that morning. And in a big city like Los Angeles, you come in and you open up this giant file that has all the things that are going on that day, and you start throwing things out. You go, this isn't good enough, this isn't good enough, and you're left with the best stuff. In a smaller city, in a smaller town, You pick up the file for that day's events and there's nothing in it or there's one or two (laughs) things in it and you have to gussy it up and sexy it up and and find Mm -hmm. some way to, to turn it into something. In the past, when you look at like ancient Egypt, comparatively speaking, there's such little stuff on that that you're looking for needles in a haystack in terms of facts and things that you could begin to construct your mosaic with. When you talk about either recent history or stuff from the future where they're going to have the entire Internet to search through, instead of searching for needles in haystacks, you have fields of haystacks as far as the eye can see. Right, so you've Uh got to find. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be like Los Angeles as opposed to Eugene, Oregon, where you have so Mm -hmm. much stuff that you're throwing stuff out. And in in ancient history, it's just the opposite. I mean, you're searching for any little shred that you can throw into the mix. Modern history, it's like, my goodness, how do I filter this down to the essence?
0: Hmm. So it's like it it will. It's interesting because it doesn't solve the problem. It creates a different problem, basically. It's a new art, in fact. So, like, think about uh, filmmaking in 30 years ago. You had to know every shot, lighting, have everything super, super perfect, and get the shot on the film with the people and the budget. And I can't even imagine all the stuff that goes into that. Now, it's a different skill. We've got 92 cameras everywhere wired up in the future. It'll be capture everything, and the skill will be who knows how to... uh, who knows how to recognize the important stuff?
1: Oh, I'll tell you. An and that's example. how you'll make a film
0: in the future, I imagine.
1: I'll give you an example right along that front. I was speaking to a very famous uh, virtual reality uh, tech leader whose name shall go unmentioned, but but he's more of a movie maker than he is a virtual reality guy, mm-hmm. and he was sitting down explaining to me. Um, I come from a family of film people, and so I'm pretty familiar with making old-fashioned 1970s movies. And he was explaining to me how the director who's going to be working in either 360 video or virtual reality has a whole set of tools now. that Totally different. Yeah, well, like he said, the example that stuck with me is he said – If it's an Alfred Hitchcock movie and the murderer is coming down the stairs, sneaking down with a knife, you pan the camera and you show them sneaking up on the victim from behind. He goes, in virtual reality now, you have to make some sound or something that forces the viewer to turn in that direction and look. Mm -hmm. In other words, you have you're still still telling stories but you must change the way you tell them to adapt to the medium and he was explaining to me all the different things that will be involved in being a director in filmmaking yeah. once virtual reality becomes the way we do it so it's the same things we were talking about earlier with the, the the physical limitations of radio force you to do things a certain way it's the same thing we were just talking about with that um, same thing with with movie making in the future look mm-hmm. at what podcasting's done too it's the same these new avenues are different colors to play with, different tools, and you can begin to explore different... They they lead you to different spaces. So we're creating, I mean, in 10 years of podcasting now, an entirely different art form. And when you go on iTunes and you look at the width and the breadth of how this art form is developing... It's an incredible creative genesis out there uh-huh. that really—I mean—I know it feels like we've had podcasts for a long time, but these things are going to be around a long time. Oh, in yeah. fifty years. This is going to look like the Stone Age. That's right. The,
0: we're we're making Gilligan's Island or Gunsmoke or something here. Compared, I think th- they'll we're be making, making Birth
1: of a Nation in silent film. Yeah,
0: we're yeah we're making n- stuff that's going to be a joke, you know, and, and we're nowhere near the the HBO special shows or Breaking Bad like one day we'll have that right now we're making the goofiest stuff you can imagine when we come back and listen to this stuff I imagine at least for me I'm sure it's that way um, some stuff may survive and be classics like your show and stuff like okay, that we're gonna
1: keep <laughs> our fingers crossed
0: it's almost that the future with that much stuff out there there's a new skill that must emerge and it's it might be a little less of visionary or still visionary but it's, it's really about curation is a skill versus synthesis and, and, and some and some degree I imagine history is going to I guess be the same way Uh, I don't know I guess I can't imagine what history we lost that we would have if we could access people's camera phones from the Persian Empire though
1: well, and I've often said, you know, if, um, Al, you know, I think I did a whole video once asking what if Alexander the Great had a podcast <laughs> and we were, we were discussing how much you would know about the people in that time period. If they were all doing shows like your show and my show, but here's the interesting thing. We may not be able to, to know what it would be like if Alexander the Great had a podcast. But people 150 years from now, including historians, will study this stuff that mm-hmm. we're doing now to try to get a feel for who we were. Yep, that's this right. is going to be primary source material for future historians.
0: Well, you know what's freaky about that is given enough data collection, you would literally be able to go back and synthesize a Dan Carlin Uh, like say a hundred years from now, everything that you've said and done is so uh, tangible and recordable and searchable and uh, reviewable. If there's enough of you recorded now, eventually, and there's enough algorithms to analyze personalities and people like that, so At some point in the future, they'll be able to make a Dan Carlin clone based on all the data you left behind with your show and your social media and everything, and they'll be able to reanimate it robotically or or mechanically somehow, and you, that Dan Carlin will react to current events the way that you would have if you were
1: there. <laughs> I've never really thought about it that way. I'll tell you what I did think about, though, that's similar, although much more personal, I remember thinking that you know you you and I, and I can't speak for anyone else's show, but I know this this is the same for a lot of other podcasters. You pour so much of 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 yourself into the work that people who listen to enough of the work get to know you. And I right. thought to myself, you know, um, if my grandchildren don't ever get to meet me or know me as an adult, they could listen to these shows and get a pretty clear idea of a lot of my personality Absolutely. and the way my brain worked and and so in that sense you know cicero the ancient roman orator said that writing was the only true form of immortality but when you think about it this is a form of writing mm-hmm. and and it's the same thing i mean like you to get to your point it's in a sense you're living on with these things that are going to be carved in digital stone and never go away. No mm-hmm. pressure, by the way, no, for the no. new podcasters out there. But, but I mean, in, in a sense, there's a piece of you that's living on. And that's how art always is, right? I mean, if you go to an art museum and you look at a Picasso... And you look at the tiny little brush strokes and realize that one day he was sitting there thinking, what do I do in this little corner? And here's my little brush stroke. I mean, there's a piece of that man in that painting. And that's how these works that we're doing, however humble or great they may be, they're all personalized bits of art that have pieces of the artist embedded in them.
0: Yeah, I would suggest given enough personal data recorded, you would be an approximation of you is almost inevitable. you or you know if you had enough about you like you feel like you understand Alexander the Great pretty well with very limited stuff and you could almost guess what he would do in a situation. So imagine all of the algorithms possible and all the data collected on people possible. Approximations of them will just be I would imagine commonplace in the future.
1: Well, if that happens, I should be able to get out history shows a little bit sooner and more often than I'm getting them out now. So keep your fingers crossed.
0: Well, that's good. I won't take any more of your time. But is that something you that uh, I mean, you self-deprecate on that? But do you do you wish that you could produce stuff at a faster rate or more? I mean, are, are you content with with where you're at and to, to keep on doing it just in the same way for, for you know infinity, or do you have a different plan for your future? Uh,
1: well, no. I mean, th- this would be. Joe Rogan told me once he said don't ever give up the podcast because you know it's you're unfireable. I mean the podcast That's is right. a direct line to the audience and, and and no one can take that away from you. This this is the best of all possible worlds in that sense. But but my income, popularity, all that stuff is directly impacted by how often the shows come out. Yeah. So so if if I could get shows out faster without the quality diminishing, I would do it in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. My big challenge these days you know, and it's funny because t- to call yourself an artist is so, you can't really, de- I mean, somebody else has to declare you're an artist or not, but I yeah. have all the downsides of being an artist without any of the upside, maybe, mm-hmm. in the sense that I have to live with the subject matter for so long that I can't multitask. You know, so when so when you say like if you want to start a podcasting business, the podcasting as you know is just one aspect of it. Right. But I but I can't switch from doing the art and the painting part to the business. I can do either or. Mm-hmm. And so for me, m- my big hang up with this entire industry is when I was on radio, my job was to be on the radio. They had other people selling ads, they had other people running promos. I mean there was a whole operation that supported the art, if mm-hmm. you will. That's right. In podcasting, it's a much smaller operation. Yep. And so when I'm not actually recording, we're doing the I mean, we got hats out finally after like a year and <laughs> a half. Who takes a year and a half to get a hat done, right? Well you know, it's when you're juggling stuff. So yeah. to answer your question, I would love to get a history show out that was as good as a good one every week um i'm struggling to get three or four out a year now, does that tell you how hard they are to do and, yeah. and still juggle the rest of the things you have to do
0: no absolutely but do you have you any know,
1: all podcasters know by oh, the
0: way. well podcasting's a medium and it's like saying i do I, i'm on cds i'm on t- cassettes so it doesn't mean it's just it, it could be anything and doesn't speak to anything about the industry behind it or the expertise to it or what you know it's just a format it doesn't mean anything to say I'm a podcaster. It means virtually nothing. It means less than saying you're a writer, almost. But yeah, for <laughs> sure. So you're an, a- you're an actress currently waiting table. Yeah, it means almost nothing. Um, but but do you have aspirations, or is this your gig till you retire?
1: Oh no, this. Well, there there are always other things that you can add into your mix of things you have mm-hmm. no time to get to. I mean, I can always add more things to that list. But but in terms of, I think. I just don't, you know, I'm a freedom guy. I'm an old punk rocker. I'm a, I'm a person who really values the, the creative, you know, when I walk into a room and and we're starting the idea for what's the next show going to be, it's an absolutely blank slate. And I love that there's Mm -hmm. no template. There's nothing. I mean, even in radio radio you know, you have breaks that are mandated at certain times and, and news at the top of the hour. And if you look at it, you break it down. It's a template mm-hmm. and you get to create within the blank spaces in that template in podcasting. It's a whiteboard. big That's whiteboard. Right. It could be a 15 minute show. Yeah. It can be a five hour show. And I've done both of those by the way, and everything in between. So the idea of locking yourself into somebody else's gig, um, because they offer you more money or more promotion or whatever is only enticing if I don't have to give up this gig to do it. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, there's a lot of money to be made if I want to go out on speaking tours, but it comes at the expense of podcasting. So I say no. Yeah. The podcasting That's is cool. what gets you everything else. And so I have to make this the priority. And to be honest, I enjoy this the most. So, so to answer your question, my hope is that people like this enough so that they're still listening. So it's your last
0: gig, continues. yeah. I think Rogan says that's like the ultimate gig. I don't know if that's his words or not, but I, I think that rings true. I mean, what if you could be successful at it and make a, your a living that you think is reasonable for whatever whoever that is? What what else? Anything else would be supplemental, or you know.
1: You know what I always tell new podcasters. you know um a friend of mine asked me the other day, some radio guys, and they said, uh, we're thinking about getting into this. and and they 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 always ask the the question, you know, can you make a living doing it? And my answer is always, how many listeners would you have to have? for it to be worth your time. And mm-hmm. that's a different answer for everybody. For
0: different industries,
1: yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, yeah, but if I said, uh, if you started a podcast today, person B, you will have 8,000 listeners in a year. Do you go, oh, 8,000 listeners, well then I'm not gonna do it, or do you go, oh my God, 8,000 exactly. listeners Exactly. So, so it really depends on what your your standards are. And as I said to somebody a long time ago, if you have, let's just say half a million people listening, you ought to be able to figure out a way to make a living with that. Or at least make some money.
0: Yeah, Yeah. but on the other hand, to have any audience of 8,000 or 800 is astonishing. And I get really irritated when people are disappointed and they ask me, well, how do you get sponsors? Do you have enough? I don't get enough sponsors. I don't have, I'm not big enough. I'm just like, well, I think you're kind of being a brat about that and not taking what you do have seriously. If you have 4,000 people listening, that's really crazy. Like if you walked out your back door and there was... 800 people standing there saying, speak to me. You would never get tired of that.
1: Somebody once told me too, It's you, you get caught up in numbers, but it's not always how many people are listening. Sometimes it's who they are. That's true. And, and you might be surprised who gets in touch with you saying, hey, I got, I got a call from somebody the other day. It was one of those weird calls where you... You pick up the phone and you recognize the person's voice, but you've never met them. Kind of call, mm-hmm. and they said, "I was just listening to the podcast. I really enjoyed it. I wanted you to know I heard it and I really liked it." And you hang up the phone and you say, "Did that just happen?" Mm-hmm. And, and and that happens with increasing frequency when you have more people listening. You yep. you might say it's only eight hundred, but it might be a couple of people that you'd be pretty darn surprised to find out were absolutely listening and I, tuning into your voice. It, yeah,
0: it's weird that they're anonymous listeners in, in the way, and you're not anonymous. But I was I was at Disneyland with my family a few weeks, a few months ago. And there was two guys in the hot tub and three other people and me sitting in there. And they were just holding court, talking about just bragging and going, like they were owning it. They were going back and forth talking about their restaurant or their their bartenders, essentially. And they're talking about celebrities that came in and stuff they knew. And they knew seven or eight people were listening to them and they were soaking it up on their vacation. And I just thought about man it, what what would these people do if they thought thousands of people were listening to them what a gift that, that can be so I hate it when people complain about small numbers on a podcast and hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of people it just strikes me as crazy because to be listened to by large numbers of people or even three or four people is it's an ama- it's amazing it's an amazing thing a multiplying effect uh, it's intoxicating I don't know what it is but
1: well, and, the, uh, and you know what I also tell people is that when I was doing talk radio I always had a small core of people that were really like over the top diehard fans, the mm-hmm. kind of people you could, you could have a cult following and live off of forever. They'd buy anything you did, but it was always this small percentage. Well, once we got to podcasting, you know, I, I explained to somebody once, I think I still have that same percentage of people who like me, but you're essentially expanding the pie so much larger. Mm-hmm. So if 1% of the audience really loves your stuff, but you're in. Arkansas, and you reach five thousand people on your radio signal, that one percent may not be a lot of human beings. But if it's podcasting and there's a billion people or whatever the number is out there of the potential pie, and you get one percent of that, that's a lot of human beings. That's right. so so in that sense, uh, I think this is the age of the niche market. Mm-hmm. I think this is the age of, of individual artists. I mean, and you know, people have said this forever. I remember punk rock came around. They said that too. All of a sudden, you know, forget them. The the industry's dead now. You know what? And of course the industry always comes roaring back and the consultants and the copycats. But I think something about podcasting and the internet specifically with blogs and vlogs and all that stuff has opened up a world that would be very tough, I think, to shut down now of independent and personal media. So when you say, would you ever leave it for something else? I'm not sure I have to leave it for anything else. The other things eventually, if you're good, come to you. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I say, you know, if you're Eddie Murphy and you need Saturday Night Live in the 1970s or 1980s to give you a platform to show your talent, if you're Eddie Murphy today, you don't. You get on there, and if you're funny, people will share it virally, and you will find yourself famous doing a podcast out of your house. Mm-hmm. So this is the greatest thing ever invented for truly gifted people. For the rest of us, it's still pretty darn <laughs> awesome. <And> I'm still <laughs> I a hear huge that. fan. I
0: hear that. And I hope it's positive for our you know, species. Just the information sharing is a, is a riot to me. I'm really excited about it in the future. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's great stuff. And I think what you do is great, and I won't take up any more of your time, Dan, but it is... Absolute treat for me to be able to get to talk to you directly like this.
1: Well, it's very nice of you to have me on. I I hope the reaction's halfway decent.
0: Oh, of course it will. But I think people will love it. I got, I mean, you know, it's a half music fans, but I spend, I do music stuff and technical stuff that that is my native thing half the time, and the other half I talk to people that I'm interested in and that I find interesting and let people tag along, and I, they seem to always like it, and I know this one's going to be really popular. So I appreciate your time, Dan.
1: You're very kind to have me on. Thank you. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network.